Welcome to the Real Life Buyer Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear interviews with business owners, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, authors, and technical specialists in their field. These professionals will hasten your development, accelerate your career, and broaden your business know-how. Now, introducing your host, Dave Barr, interviewing with a purchasing twist. Hello, and welcome to the Real Life Buyer. Many people are embarrassed by problems in the bedroom and are subject to highly stressful and distressing physical and mental problems as a result. What does not help is that turning to others to confide in may be unthinkable. My guest today, Dr. Soam Rekshi, the CEO and co-founder of Mystery Vibe, has incorporated his skills in electronics with the knowledge of sexual health experts to create a company making sexual health solutions accessible to all. Today, I will not be discussing the personal and sexual side of this area, but to learn the processes, systems, development and research that is applied to investigate, solve and manufacture new innovative products that address such often difficult to discuss matters. So without further ado, I welcome Dr. Soam onto the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, dear. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming and joining me today. I know you're an extremely busy chap. So let's start by finding out more about yourself and your inspiration. What really inspired you to enter into this industry and be, create innovative products for, should we say, sexual pleasure and wellness? So my background is biomedical and back in 2004, so almost 20 years ago, I did my PhD focusing on ophthalmology working with Plymouth Hospital from Bath, where I was based, and uh, building systems to recognize eyes, so iris recognition systems, which are still used in airports. So that was my first major work in biomedical. So we built that over five years during my PhD and postdoc years, and that became a little company which was eventually acquired by a US company. So that was my first uh, biomedical work. And I always wanted to get back into biomedical because after that, company got acquired, all of us uh, moved on to normal jobs. Like I worked in Deloitte for a while, working consulting to learn business. But really my goal was to find another topic I'm really passionate about and then get back to building useful devices. In So the topic that constantly came up during my years in corporate was major life events like childbirth, menopause, aging, diabetes, cancer, etc. Major life events which affect everybody. And the effect it has on intimacy and sexual health, uh, like pain after childbirth, dryness after menopause, uh, erectile, erectile dysfunction, and not having many solutions, not having enough information. And this is more than a decade ago, not having even not knowing who to talk to, which doctor knows about these things. So there was this massive gap in an area which seemed extremely common and very obvious that everyone goes through. It wasn't something very niche, like let's say, you know, specific types of cancer, which is obviously very significant to cure, but might only affect 0.1% of the population. Whereas something like pregnancy affects 60% of women, menopause affects 100% of women above 50. So it's erectile dysfunction affects 50% of men, uh, prostate cancer, one in seven men, very common things, nothing, nothing special, right? So the uh, thing that I wanted to do with our old team is get together again and work with leading urologists, gynecologists, uh, pelvic floor therapists, sexual health nurses, and figure out how engineering can help. Because that's all we understand is bringing engineering into medicine. And what we need from the specialists is the knowledge 
of the human body, of how it works, of how things like blood flow can help with pain relief and how we can help deliver that. So that's the that's the reason back in 2013, we started uh, working on Mystery Vibe. Okay, that's quite fascinating. And it's, as you say, it's an area that you saw there are some opportunities. So the the innovator, the entrepreneur in yourself obviously came to the fore. It's almost a, a case of where do you start? And I understand you're talking to some of the leading specialists and doctors, and we'll dive into that a little bit deeper in a minute. But somehow you've got to come up with the research and development, the ideas, the processes, and go into that go into creating the devices that address these these difficult issues, challenging issues, things that are very personal and people perhaps find difficult to discuss. So how did you start in the R and D phase? How do you go about even developing a first type of product to make it to be available for people and to address a specific issue? This is something probably happened a little bit in the early years, maybe not on day one, but it's something now that I know I want to tell everyone is there's an excellent program called NHS Clinical Entrepreneurship. Yeah. And it is the most helpful program in healthcare, medtech, pharma, whichever area you think of related to health, because it costs nothing, is full of the top specialist doctors giving their time and help for free. And you simply contact them and you ask for help. So the head of the program is Professor Tony Young. So I went to meet him and I said, this is what I would love to work on. This is what we want to bring our engineering expertise to, but we know nothing about the medical side. Can you connect us with the doctors that would be willing to help? And luckily he had worked and did his PhD under the, the, the urologist, the senior urology professor at King's College. And, and King's College is the biggest NHS trust in the UK. So they have St. Thomas Hospital, Guy's Hospital, King's Hospital, and obviously King's College. And, and they also have the largest biomedical engineering area. So, so the professor, uh, there, professor who Professor Tony Young studied under, uh, Professor Purkhat Dasgupta had incidentally worked on vibration research over 30 years ago to help with passing urine for men who were struggling to pass urine. So he is a very big fan of applying engineering into medicine and pioneered robotic surgery as well. So we were very lucky that through NHS Clinical Entrepreneurship Program, we met the right doctor who not only had the experience of urology of medicine, the diverse range of topics, but also had experience working with engineering uh, with vibration and had always been a big proponent of introducing engineering into healthcare uh, at the at every level. So so that's how the medical side happened, but very much from you know health in our case from a big program. But I would say this applies anywhere in the world because when you're starting something, the best thing would be to go and reach out to organizations or hospitals and ask them, how can we work together so we find the right amount of medical expertise who truly care about solving problems outside the use of tablets, and they will be extremely helpful just in giving you the guidance. So that's the first bit, which is finding the people. But the second bit was, how did we do the R&D? So the way we did the R&D was we recreated what already works. So the our first device, which is called Crescendo, is designed to help with pelvic pain, a really common topic after childbirth. And it can happen at other times, but 
know, very common topic of a childbirth. And what pelvic floor therapists do is use two fingers, reach and inside the vagina and try and reach the points on the vaginal wall and the pelvic floor to uh, help with pain relief. Now, that is obviously very complicated for someone to do to themselves. So what happens is if you don't go to a therapist, either you don't know, you don't have time, or it might be expensive, then you just live with the pain. And often, uh, and, and a, s- a sad statistic is one in two mums, even after two years of childbirth, still has pain because they have done nothing about it. So what we had to do was we knew this work. In the doctor said, look, this is great. It works. This is therapy that is proven. Can you do this using engineering so that the patient can do it at home by themselves? Because that's how we can bring about change. Because what we can't do is create a clinical device, which only the doctor or the therapist can use. And then the problem goes back to there is no time or money for the person to go and have therapy. So that was the, that was the ask from the medical communities. This is a topic that matters very significant topic. This is how we solve it. And it's very effective. However, a patient can't do it on their own. Can you then go and build something which recreates literally a bendable two fingers? And that's exactly what we built. So we spent probably two to three years just on R&D. And, and the thing with medical is you need to get it to a point where it's safe, it's compliant before you can test it at all. So I would say we probably spent two to three years just in the lab back and forth with the doctors and therapists, but nothing till it was fully ready to test. And then another maybe three or four years after that to constantly iterate to get to a point we were really happy that it's super, super reliable. So it's a very long process because it's not something you can just build and test. You have to build, comply, regulatory approval, safe for humans, and then test, and then get feedback and go back to the drawing board and change a lot of things. So now 10, you know, we're 10 years old. We're happy with our first two products, first three products. We're really happy that we spent enough years and we have over over 100,000 patients who use our devices, enough feedback to say these are solid. They work 90% plus of the times. But the same long process applies to every new product, at least two to three years before we would give it to someone to test, another few years before it's ready, you know, for mass production, uh, then clinical trials, etc. So the the R and D hasn't really changed. The process is very long, but when it's done and we're really happy, and the doctors are really happy, the patients are really happy, then it has a very long lifetime of use. It could easily be in the market for ten plus years without changing anything. Wow, that's an incredible story, and what a find, really. To I say stumble into, but to be connected with people that are prepared to give you their time for free with an incredible network of highly intelligent and supportive people, a, a community to help you, basically. It's really quite fascinating that obviously you started in the UK. Did you, did you connect with other specialists in different countries? Was there a difference in their approach, the way they supported you? Is there anything that you can comment about the, the global view and support and help that they could provide you. Very much. So the best thing I think about healthcare is the problems are the same all over the world. Yeah. With minor variations, you know, pain after childbirth is not going to be different, whether it's in UK, US, Germany, Spain, etc. So 
the doctors want the same thing. They all go to the same conferences, big urology, gynecology conferences. They all share notes. They all read the same journals. And that is incredibly valuable because you don't have to make different products for different countries. People are extremely helpful. They want to solve problems. So through uh, over the last 10 years, through conferences, through doctors connecting us with other doctors, through us just being out there, being featured in newspapers, etc., we now have doctors who recommend our products, not just tested, but at that final stage where they're recommending our products in US, UK, Germany, Spain, Italy, Canada, and and I think Mexico. So, uh, and, and all of that is word of mouth. We don't do any distribution. It's purely word of mouth. People find out about us either from other doctors or from conferences. And then they reach out to us. They say, you know, we want, can you send us some samples so we can try it with our patients? We send them samples. And then once they're happy that this is actually useful, then they start recommending their products. So we're recommended by Mayo Clinic, by Cedar Sinai, Rush Hospital in Chicago, doctors at Veterans Association in UK, Kings, UCL, Baths in Berlin, Charity Hospital. So lots of uh, different uh, institutions who have used our products, the patients are, have truly benefited and they recommend uh, our products for various things, whether it's your ED, arousal after cancer recovery, pain after childbirth, various different things. Right. That's fascinating because it's great to hear there's a common language. You know, one of the things I was thinking of the different beliefs, the cultures from country to country may take a different viewpoint on different things, but it sounds like there's one voice basically and the solidarity, the network that you're working with will obviously give you the best advice possible that suits everybody. You have a single solution. It's a fantastic vision to be in. I think the three things that matter the most, one is safety. And safety is obviously a lot about getting the right re regulatory approvals like FDAC, et cetera. So safety is fundamental. Second is efficacy. And efficacy, the easiest way, I think, is journal publications, because then it's undisputed. Yeah. And journals, in our case, like Journal of Sexual Medicine, means it has been peer reviewed by the top doctors and everyone in the world will accept it. Like if it's been, and it's a long process, it takes years. Once it's journal published, they know that it has gone through enough scrutiny that it's worth trying. They might still not take it at face value, but they're like, okay, it's safe and it's worth trying. And the third is recommendations, like getting recommendations from very big, well-known brands like King's, uh, Mayo, Charity, etc., because you know that they didn't take money from us. They have absolutely no vested interest in saying this is useful for our patients because there's no commercials. And, and that's what doctors all over the world know, that if they're recommending it, it must be useful to a lot of their patients. So I think those three key things matter in terms of globalizing the brand. And then the cherry on top is being able to get it reimbursed, which is very local. You know, what will work in US would be different from Canada, etc. But that's at a very local level and get it getting reimbursed so that insurance can cover it. But apart from that, the three pillars are very much safety, efficacy and recommendations. Now, it's incredible the time it takes to develop the products and get them approved. Now, all that time, basically, you're spending money, but you've got to find the funding to cope with that. Now, 
is it something you had to go to the market? You would get angel investing or big business to invest in, in you and your products to fund this research? Or you know, how did you go about getting the money to, to do this for years before you could sell a product? Right. Very, very true. So the I would say that is the biggest challenge in healthcare is you can't sell anything for years and years till the product is absolutely perfect. It's perfect. It's safe. It's effective. Doctors love it. Before that, it's not something where you can send out a half-baked product. That just doesn't work in healthcare. So you really need to be at a point where that's it. This is the product and you're not going to change it for a long time. That's when you go big. So uh, you're absolutely right. There's nothing you can do in healthcare for free. Everything costs money. Compliance, R&D costs money. Hardware costs money. Manufacturing costs money. Compliance regulatory approvals cost money, clinical trials cost money, everything costs money, right? And you have you can't cut corners. You have to do them properly. What that means is you need to raise enough money to do all the things properly, tick every box, then go out and then do <coughs> marketing to get it out there. So over the last 10 years, we raised 10 million pounds, which is roughly $12 million from angel investors, but really helpful angel investors like doctors, corporate executives, who not only gave us money, but also gave us free help. And that helped us a lot because we're only a team of uh, less than 20 people. So we're a very small team and we do everything end to end ourselves. We don't outsource anything at all. So having a lot of advisors for free helped us a lot. So I would say we didn't just get money from our angels. Over the 10 years, we got so much advice that we got to where we are today with a small team because we have a massive extended team. Mm, that's fascinating. Now, I guess when you're going to get investment, you need to have a very clear plan. They want to see forecasts, projections. How did you go about getting that information? Was that, again, from your network that gave you an idea of the uh, depth of the problem, the likelihood of them taking up the solutions that you came up with? And how did that translate over over years? No doubt you had to do projections for one to five or even 10 years, perhaps. So the uh, I would say the thing is, with healthcare, Often people invest in the long, and I know you said that to everyone in the beginning, that this is a 10-year plan, not a five-year plan. We won't be able to deliver much in five years. We should be able to deliver something significant in 10 years. And that's something I think is true generally with healthcare, uh, life sciences. So that's one thing. The second thing is in the early days, we didn't really think of it as projections because we were too early. We thought of it as what's the market size, you know, how many Let's say, we'll just talk about two things, pain after childbirth and erectile dysfunction, because those were the two topics we started with. Percentage of women who have it, you know, just focusing on one or two countries, how many can we get? How many will benefit? What's the price point they'll be happy with? So for example, we figured out that the cost of one visit is the price point everybody was happy with. So let's say to visit therapists cost you 200 pounds and you are willing to spend 200 pounds on a device that you can use forever and you never have to pay a single penny again. And that is a very easy to explain, justify, understand. So these are little things that we figured out by talking to doctors, talking to therapists, talking to patients in the early days. So we knew what was our price point that we had to deliver it within. And then we knew that there is sufficient demand that if they knew we exist, they would buy it. So that's kind of where we started. And I would say most of the early investors invested more because they wanted us to solve the problem. And they probably had gone through it themselves, whether 
uh, or in the family, you know, pain, erectile dysfunction, prostate cancer, etc. And they felt, and I always said this, especially in the beginning, is you can only angel invest if you assume you'll lose the money just because 90% of startups in the early stages will not make it. And that's very important that investors do that, knowing that, yes, I might make it big or I might make zero, but if I make zero, it wouldn't make a difference to my life. Right. And that's really important. So, so I would say the first few years, it wasn't about the model. It was very much about the market size and being able to deliver a good product at a good price point and there's there being enough people. And then post FDA, which we got in 2019 and when we could start selling, then we had real metrics and then we set targets like doubling every year, hitting a certain revenue and EBIT ratios because we care about both equally. We care about building it as a really strong growing business, which can grow organically without needing money. Yes, you do need a lot of money to do the R&D and compliance, et cetera, but you shouldn't need money once you've done all that because the business should just grow itself. So so we built everything where we constantly look at two metrics, revenue and profit, and always grow both at the same time. Because what we don't want to do is grow revenue while sacrificing profit and becoming loss-making and then running out of money. So so that's what, yeah, I would say the later investors very much understood the financials of it. And, and we could build a model once we started selling, but the early investors more believed in what we were trying to achieve and also were comfortable with if we couldn't go down the route we were trying, let's say we build a device, it didn't work we had the capability to pivot and build something else and figure it out. And that's really what they were investing in that, yes, this is your idea on day one, but it may not work in two or three years time. And you know that you can figure out something else and build that. Mm, Absolutely fascinating. So I'm guessing now, but perhaps this is the case that you must have been able to undertake initial small scale production. So you can produce small quantities, samples for testing, et cetera, before you could consider a mass production solution. So can you tell us about the manufacturing, the supply chain management and the distribution of your products going through those two phases? Yeah. Yeah. Very, it's, and it's been super valuable being able to separate the two. So, so we're based in Guildford, which is in Surrey, very close to London. And our, we have an end-to-end lab. So we have three different uh, buildings, the office, the um, the PCB room, and another room. And we can build everything end-to-end to, let's say, a 1,000 units, 2,000 units, which is use user, end-user level. Yeah, full. So that's the capability we built early on in order to be able to build something all the way from a sketch to a product that a customer can use in our lab. So we not only understand the entire process, but we can iterate constantly during the early manufacturing all by ourselves, feeding it back into the design, changing the design till to, till the point where we are happy that it's not only a very good product to use, but it's a very easy product to manufacture because those are two very different things. And once we are confident that this is this delivers all of the requirements from the user perspective, and it is incredibly simple to put together so it can be scaled in production, then we hand it over to a medical factory in Hong Kong. Wow. Now, I'm quite interested now that you've now gone into mass production. 
you've identified, should we say, lean manufacturing process in, in some respects. You've optimized the process to hand over to your supplier, in this case, the factory. How did you ensure or even find the right supplier for you? How do you ensure they met the quality, the delivery, the reliability, the consistency standards, whilst also, I'm assuming, uh, considering the, the ESG, the environmental, the social and the government's factors? Can you elaborate on that process on how you got there? Yes. And this actually applies to all of our partners, whatever that is, could be compliance partners, uh, regulatory partners, whichever things that we can't do internally. We go 100% by recommendations because we can't think of any other way we would know if it's going to work out. And it's a risk not worth taking going full cold, you know, like looking up a directory and reaching out to someone because the investment is significant. It's if in setting up a manufacturing partner, it's easily a million pounds just to get all the tooling and everything set up. Wow. And it's not something you can do it, then try it and then see it's not working and then change again. So we, and, and the thing is, this is a solved problem, whether it's manufacturing, logistics, warehousing, these are all solved problems. They exist. No one does it in-house. Like even big companies like Apple, they don't manufacture, they obviously do the early volumes themselves like we do but high volume manufacturing is always also same with logistics same with warehousing etc what that means is this is solved people already know who's good at what and there is there is a you know it's not difficult to figure out someone in your network who will be able to connect with someone and you trust them so i would say that is fundamental is going with recommendations understanding what they have done before you looking at those products thinking, oh, I love these products. I want my product to be as good as this. So that's how we found our manufacturing partner, talking to uh, investors, talking to other uh, startups, talking to bigger companies and buying products that they have manufactured and using them as users, looking at every compliance documents they have, like ISO 13485, um, medical uh, certifications, a source, where do they source components so that and, and luckily, when you go through ISO, you have to have these anyway. So once you know that they have this, then it's very easy to get the rest of the documentation. So so something like ISO, CEF, FDA, et cetera, is, uh, are very useful to know that everything is protected. Again, uh, auditing. So we picked a company which is listed on the Hong Kong stock market and they're audited by PricewaterhouseCooper. So we could talk directly to the auditors. So there were there was a really long process. It is slow. I think the whole process took a year. It is slow, but it's worth doing because a mistake in something like a manufacturing partner could bankrupt you if you you know lose all those stuff and things come out badly, or it can ruin your brand. So it's and especially in medical, you know, you could end up hurting someone, which is uh, devastating. So we spent a long time on factory selection. Yeah, it's brilliant. And it just shows the importance of your network in the helping you to find those companies and the due diligence that you undertook to validate, check, recheck and secure the, the I guess, the intellectual property as well, so that you knew that your product was safe in the right hands. Uh, it be looked after by them and you know, it gives you a huge reassurance that your future is in, you know, is embedded in a good, solid, reliable company. Yeah. Fantastic. 
textbook stuff there is 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 very really imp- impressive. And again, it's the value of your network in helping you to find that perfect partner is is incredibly useful. Now, obviously, things changing in the world quite quickly. New materials are being developed all the time. There's advances in technology. There's new research that comes out. How do you stay on top of all these advances and integrate them into both your existing and future product development? I guess that's the researcher in us. And being a small team means we can constantly share ideas. And I really like being less than 20%. That's kind of our limit on what we think is the sweet spot where we have enough people who uh, have the diversity of talent, but not too many that we are spending time on project managing each other. So the, um, I guess a, a, a way to put this would be a real life example. So there's been a lot of chat about AI, you know, in the last few months, the way we see it is we need to understand where the current level of AI that is publicly accessible can help us with our day-to-day work and where it can help us and improve our delivery, we will apply it and we will stay on top of it and introduce more things as we go along. So for example, big part of our time before used to be on code debugging and code documentation. And it's one of those things you have to do and it takes up a lot of time. We have now researched over the last, say, three months, enough AI platforms to be able to do that accurately and still obviously humanly check it and save significant hours of our time spent before. So that is a really simple example of as new technology comes in, how can we introduce them sensibly, use it where it's actually adding value, not just use it because everyone says it's cool and see what else is coming that we can apply. Same with material science, same with motor research, same with plastic research. And also we prefer the Apple model where we don't want to be the first person launching something that hasn't really been tried and tested yet because we are in medical and what we care about more is lifetime. You know, like how long will it last? How robust is it? How strong is it? How reliable is it? How consistent it is over many, many years? We care about that more than about putting the latest tech because often the latest tech needs a bit of years to become stable tech that is really one easy to use because it also needs explanation, but equally very uh, reliable for, you know, longevity. So I would say when it comes to internal stuff we do, we definitely try to keep on top of the latest stuff, like code debugging as an example. When it's customer facing things, we try to be more on the side of caution and release things which have been tried and tested for a while. Mm. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. You say being at the forefront in a medical situation could be exciting, but also carries, I guess, risks as well. And the risks are the thing that could make or break your product and your reputation. So that's, yeah, I can understand the criticality of that. I, I could probably talk to you for hours about this. I find this stuff really fascinating, but I'm very conscious of our time. Before I ask you my final question. Can you explain to people where they find out more about you, your products, uh, which social media channels you are on, what website you're on, etc.? Very simple. All of it is Mystery Vibe. So mysteryvibe.com, Twitter is Mystery Vibe, Instagram is Mystery Vibe, everything is Mystery Vibe. And the word comes from Esther Perel's TED Talk in 2012, 
uh, it was a very nice talk about keeping a long-term relationship exciting. And she said, just keep the mystery in the bedroom. And, and our goal was that with our devices, we bring that mystery back, especially, you know, after something major has happened, like you had a child and you're pain and you can't be intimate. How can we help as a company to bring that intimacy back? So mysteryvibe.com and everything is mystery vibe. Brilliant. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people now looking at your products and uh, really understanding the value in the the research, the integrity, the knowledge that has poured into those products to make sure they're the optimum for the patient. It's um, absolutely fantastic. I want to turn the last question on yourself. You have faced enormous challenges, no doubt. You've had to have the patience of a saint, the sound of things for these things to take so long. You've had to interact with some of the best minds in their field. There must be some incredible lessons that you have learnt, incredible challenges that you've faced and overcome. So can you tell us more about you, how you have managed to, to you know, stay the course and really realise a fantastic company and product? I think... <laughs> I think this is particularly true for healthcare. I think perseverance is the one thing that I can think of in the last 10 years that has mattered more than anything else. And it applies to everything, whether it's product, you want to persevere till you get to the point where you're really satisfied before you send it out. Fundraising, you know it will take time, but you persevere. Getting the right product market fit, again, takes time, enough input, and just staying the course because you know that what you're building fundamentally is valuable uh, because that is the only thing that matters is you know that if you can build it, you will solve something significant. Once you believe that, then it's just a matter of persevering till you build that well enough that it is doing what it set out to do. So I do think persevering is just the one thing over a decade. You know, that's what that's all I remember from the decade is sticking to it and believing that when we are ready with the product that actually helps people, the rest is easy. So incredible the mindset you have to stay the course. If there was there any times when you felt, my God, I'm not sure if I can cope with this any longer. I, you know, there's a, an insurmountable challenge seemed to face you. Is there any such things that? even if the slightest deviated you from your course and your end objective? I think this is where the team matters so much and having a small close-knit team that, you know, has been there from the beginning is we will all have our ups and downs, especially over a decade, but having that support network inside the company where everybody knows everything that's going on and knows that and reminds you that we've been through worse, right? And this is nothing. And the step next is even more exciting, means that you can get through pretty much everything just because you're surrounded by people who share your pain, but see the bright side of what we can deliver. We must have incredible team dynamics and the leadership from you. You know, let's not belittle this. The leadership that for you, for people to follow must be incredible. You know, for people to stay the course of time over years while things are being developed, that takes an exceptional leader. You know, what's your secret? I don't like to think of it that way. I always think it's a team effort. The best thing I have seen about leadership is a graphic where there, is, there are two pictures. Uh, one, there is 
a boss who is sitting on top and there's a bunch of people pulling his rock and he's whipping them. And then there is a leader who is at the front of the rope with the team behind him and pulling the rock and putting in the effort from the front. Definitely the second one. Uh, I can't imagine not doing stuff. You know, that, that's, and that's always the engineer in me. Like I can't just sit and watch things happen. I want to get my hands dirty and do stuff. So, and, and I think the other great thing we have is all of us in the team are independent. We know what we're doing and we do our own things and we share ideas, but we don't need five people to do the same thing. And that gives all of us equally uh, independence in what we are trying to achieve and the reward that we have achieved something and we did it. And when we need support, we ask each other, but we have very clear demarcation of what we are responsible for. And that in many cases we opted into um, in the sense that we think, okay, this is something I'm really either good at already or want to get very good at. And I'm going to focus on this. And this is how it delivers to the ultimate objective. And then having that and having that as a long-term thing where it doesn't really change every day makes it quite easy to run. Well, it's been fascinating. I appreciate your how humble you are. I think you should give yourself a lot more credit than you do. It's incredible what you've done, what you've achieved, and are no doubt are continuing to achieve. So on the behalf of those people that have benefited from your research and your persistence, thank you very much. Thank you again for having me. It's been a wonderful experience. I'd love to talk to you again someday. Thanks for coming on the show. I do appreciate your time. Thank you. So there's another Real Life Buyer podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it and it's given you some ideas and inspiration for greater action and achievement. If you are a purchasing or a supply chain professional, business owner or director, come and join my Facebook group, the Purchasing and Supply Chain Community Hub, a safe place to engage with like-minded, friendly people. See you soon. Bye.